good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Abbas Milani. I direct the Iranian Studies program here. And we have made a firm commitment to start programs on time, uh, whether the latecomers come or not. And so we are going to start. Um, before I uh, introduce uh, tonight's speaker, I want to uh, uh, remind you that we have these flyers outside. Uh, they give you uh, some of our upcoming programs. Two of them are particularly worth remembering, one on November 7th, where we will give the BETA award to uh, Iraja Pezekshad, uh, and uh, he will be reading a, or performing a story. And we have also asked Parviza Sayyad to come and talk about uh, creating uh, the famous role that he created. Uh, and then on December 13th, we have a panel discussion on Simina Behbani, Farzane Milani, Omide Behbani, Bahram Beizai, Mary Ostobi, and Kaveh Safa, who will be talking about different aspects of Simina Behbani's uh, poetry uh, and uh, life. Uh, that one is on December 30th uh, in the CIMEX Auditorium. Uh, the uh, event on the Iraji Pezeshtad is in the Alumni Center main uh, reception area. Uh, there is also a reception after the event. Uh, and then uh, our next talk is Thursday, October 30th. We have Mohsen Kadivar, who is a well-known theologian, uh, now teaching at Duke University. He'll be talking about uh, his uh, criticism of the concept of Velayat al-Faqih. He has written a book about it, and uh, uh, he'll be talking about it in, in some detail. So uh, all of these events uh, are in English, including uh, tonight's event. Uh, it gives me great uh, pleasure to introduce our uh, speaker for tonight. He is uh, of the new generation of Iranian scholars, uh, or Iranian-born scholars, who are working about Iran and about the margins of Iran and about uh, a very new field of global history. Uh, he is one of those young scholars who, uh, while uh, born and bred in the atmosphere of Iranian studies, he hasn't remained in the confines of Iranian studies and keeps uh, threading further and further and doing uh, really fascinating work on what it is now very much a fad in historical and global studies, the notion of global studies and trade routes and how these things are beyond the normal traditions of historiography. Uh, he is a PhD from Yale University, um, trained with one of the better historians of uh, modern Iran, Professor Amanat, whose brother we're going to invite next year to Stanford, uh, next uh, 2015. Uh, Hossein will be talking about uh, building the Shahiyat Monument, is arguably the architect of the most monumental monument in the last uh, 60 years. Uh, and. Uh, 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 professor Khazani is now uh, assistant professor at Pomona College. I read from his uh, student comments that he's a great teacher, but is very hard grader. So uh, we welcome him and hope that he will give us a passing grade. Thank you for uh, inviting me to speak at Stanford tonight and uh, at the Iranian Studies program. I've uh, 
admired uh, Professor Milani's uh, work and his contributions to the politics and history of Iran for decades. Uh, and, um, and so it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my talk tonight is, is, a, is on a stone and the history of a stone that I guess we'd normally associate with the American Southwest and really uh, strange jewelry. But um, who would have ever known that it's a stone, as the name suggests, turquoise or turquoise, that it's a stone connected with the Turks and that it was mined um, at mines um, on the borders of Iran and Afghanistan. So I'll begin with a story. In the spring of 1613, the Mughal Emperor Jahangir dispatched Muhammad Hussein Khan Chelebi, a merchant of gems and other precious objects, to Safavid Iran with letters of introduction and orders to purchase rarities for the royal estate in India. Chelebi met Shah Abbas I in the eastern Iranian province of Khorasan and presented him with a letter from the Mughal Emperor. Most important among the list of items that the merchant was charged to find was quality turquoise. But the Safavid monarch informed him that the precious stone was under royal monopoly and could only be gifted by the Shah himself. Following this pronouncement, Shah Abbas chose one of his personal attendants to turn over six bags of turquoise containing 30 seers, roughly one and a half pounds of ore, to the merchant from India. The Shah included with the gift a letter to Jahangir professing his brotherhood and friendship while apologizing for the inferiority of the turquoise and reporting that the gem was no longer mine as it once had been. On receiving the bags of turquoise, Jahangir lamented that the quality was indeed poor, writing in his memoirs, no matter how hard the gem carvers and setters tried, they couldn't find a stone worthy of being made into a ring. The gift of turquoise from the Safavid Shah to the Emperor of Mughal India in 1613 was embedded in the tributary imperial networks of early modern Eurasia. Among the post-Timurid Islamic empires of the Near East and South Asia, the Safavids, the Mughals, and the Ottomans, sky blue stone turquoises from Iran circulated widely and became valued as an object of imperial tribute and exchange. It was fitting that Jahangir, whose insatiable taste for jewels was legendary, should seek turquoise from the mines of the Safavid Empire. But his search for the wondrous blue stones of Iran was entwined in the ongoing imperial contention between the Safavids and the Mughals over the Afghan city of Kandahar an outpost between their empires. Gandahar had been promised to the Safavid Shah, Shah Tahmas I by the Mughal Emperor Humayun, who had been driven from the Indian subcontinent by the Afghans in 1540 and had taken refuge in Iran before reclaiming his empire in India with the aid of Safavid troops. But into the first decades of the 17th century, as Jahangir's merchants set out to find Persian turquoise, the Mughals had yet to relinquish the city. The poor quality of turquoise that Shah Abbas sent when he was merely a few miles from the city of Nishapur and the most esteemed mines of turquoise in the world acquires fuller meaning when viewed in the context of this struggle over the Afghan crossroads between the empires. With the question of Gandahar unsettled, it may well have been that Shah Abbas withheld from Jahangir the choice turquoise from the old mines outside Nishapur. Or may it have been 
that the famed old mines of gem-quality stones were becoming depleted in the 17th century, as the Shah seems to suggest. A miniature painting that Jahangir commissioned just five years later in 1618, representing his dominion over the Indian subcontinent in Central Asia, evokes this gift of turquoise and the unsettled nature of the Afghan city of Kandahar. Drawn by the Mughal court artist Abul Hassan, the illustration depicts Jahangir and Shah Abbas embracing while standing on a globe of the world set against the backdrop of a celestial turquoise sky. A larger-than-life Jahangir balances on a sleeping lion that straddles India and Central Asia as a diminutive Shah Abbas stands on a delicate lamb being pushed out of Asia. The world-seizing Jahangir appears with a ring of blue turquoise on his right hand, and there we see he has two rings of pearls and then a sapphire and a Persian turquoise on his right. To find turquoise entangled in the imperial history of early modern Eurasia is fitting for, as this talk argues, the stone was an object of imperial interaction, and the early modern turquoise trade flourished through the emergence of Islamic tributary empires of pastoral nomadic origins that moved from the tent to the throne to build imperial cities and become integrated into global routes of trade and travel, linking the Near East, Central Asia and South Asia. Turquoise became an imperial stone and color in the tributary economies and material culture of early modern Islamic empires, which negotiated their power with rival states and their own subjects through the exchange and display of regalia and nature's objects. From the lands of the interconnected Timurid, Safavid, Mughal, and Ottoman empires, where turquoise appeared as an object of imperial power projected in vivid color displays, the stone and its culture traveled across the world. This talk will trace the journeys of turquoise from its remote point of origin outside the city of Nishapur in eastern Iran, across the Near East, India, Central Asia, Europe, and in the end, the Americas. An opaque sky blue phosphate of aluminum and copper formed by nature in rocks below the surface of the earth, turquoise became known as a mineral substance in early modern networks of travel and trade. Found exclusively in desert environments, its deposits were historically mined in a wide mineral bearing stratum extending from Egypt through Iran to Tibet with the most precious stones unearthed from the mines of Nishapur. Turquoise evolved into an object of imperial interaction and exchange among the empires of early modern Islamic Eurasia. By the 16th century, as it traveled from Nishapur through the blue-tiled cities of eastern Islamic Eurasia and farther to Venice, Paris, and other European markets, it was coveted as a strange and exotic object from the East, becoming associated with the Turks and the trade routes that carried the gem across the Ottoman Empire to Europe. The stone was called Pietre Turquese in Italian and in French Pierre Turquoise or the Turkish stone. As turquoise traveled, something of its meaning went with it. Turquoise was among the tinted stones from Asia that gave substance to the perception of the color blue. 
brilliant natural substances, turquoise, cobalt, and lapis lazuli from Afghanistan and Iran were traded across the early modern world and catalyzed the creation of the previously uncommon color of blue as a cultural phenomenon. Turquoise was the color of the sky, and it was color that brought turquoise into demand and defined its culture as an object. Where turquoise reached, from the tents of Central Asian pastoral nomads to the royal courts of Eurasian princes, it left its meanings, prized for the nature of its celestial blue. Turquoise was worn as an ornament and as a jewel adorning rings, cameos, and amulets. It dusted the leather bindings of books. It was inlaid on the surface of shields, bridles, and weapons of war. Ground into powder, it was taken as medicine and regarded as one of the seven colors, Hafrang of heaven was adopted for the palette of tiles fired in the workshops of Ceramicis and appeared in Islamic Eurasia as the color of imperial cities and their architectural monuments. The Eurasian turquoise trade flourished through the early 18th century until the fall of the Safavid Empire in 1722 and the subsequent ruin of the old mines of Nishapur uh, led to its ebb. By the 19th century, when the Qajar dynasty attempted to revive the mines, colonial empires had eclipsed the tributary empires of Islamic Eurasia and the imperial meaning of the turquoise trade faded away and was lost. In the 1890s, the reopening of lost Aztec mines in the Americas along what came to be known as the turquoise trail unearthed more accessible sources of the stone that came to rival the Persian blue. Um, now, just to say a few words about where turquoise comes from, and of course we're dealing with various levels of time here, and on the deepest level of all is the geological time. Um, it's, it's a mineral substance formed in seams of rocks below the surface of the earth. It's a hydrous phosphate of copper and aluminum that's born in igneous rocks is magma, fiery liquid deep within the earth, surges toward the surface, pools and solidifies. In a geological process that lasts thousands of years, nature weathers, buries, and erodes these rocks, bringing their copper, aluminum, phosphorus, oxygen, hydrogen, and water together to create the chemistry of turquoise. A 19th century Persian natural history compares the formation of a turquoise to the ripening of fruit. It is said, turquoise is like a cherry. The more it ripens, the better. But all the cherry needs to ripen is the sun of one season, whereas for turquoise it takes 1,000 years, yek hezar sal modat lazemast, to reach the state at which it can be cut from its rock matrix and traded as a precious stone and ornament. It must undergo deep geological changes and alterations within the layers of the earth. If it's mined too soon, uh, its color fades and it turns to green. So these igneous rocks rich in aluminum and copper minerals give birth to turquoise. And over centuries, deep-seated weathering and exposure to the elements alter their form. As rainwater seeps from the surface through these rocks, it breaks down and converts their minerals into new chemical substances. And here you have an early 19th century uh, 
uh, depiction by James Sowerby's uh, text, Exotic Mineralogy of an Actual Specimen from Nishapur that you know, he laid out here and classified rather kind of beautifully. Uh, he wrote an original book of mineralogy and then he wrote exotic mineralogy, which is basically all the minerals and stones that were found outside of Britain. Right? As these minerals solidify into rocks, they enclose the now crystallized turquoise, a naturally occurring mineral substance with a definite chemical composition. And contact with copper ores and the passing of time gave turquoise an opaque stone its defining physical property, a sky blue color. And while turquoise can have many shades, including a common pale green, the finest stones, those deemed as gems, and those that age for thousands of years in the oldest rocks are sky blue, but the color is inconstant and unstable and can fade to green. It is in the nature of turquoise to change. And it's likely that this stone was first eroded um, and, and found in, in the foothills of mountains where it caught the eyes of passerbys who then delved into the mines and created caves in order to mine uh, for more of it. Um, the chemistry of turquoise occurs in desert environments from Mesoamerica to Eurasia. For centuries, the hub of its trade was Asia, where turquoise was unearthed in a mineral-bearing stratum extending from the Sinai in Egypt through Iran to Tibet, with the city of Nishapur in eastern Iran being the historic heartland for the finest stones. In Mesoamerica, turquoise, called Chalchahuitl, the best of it mined from New Mexico and the Cerrillos mines, became an object of tribute and sacred regalia in the Aztec Empire in the post-classical period. Spanish explorers described a blue-green stone that the indigenous populations treasured, and in 1519, Montezuma famously offered uh, gifts of turquoise to the conquistador Hernán Cortés. Uh, the stone was first unearthed, however, thousands of years earlier on the other side of the world in pre-dynastic Egyptian Sinai. The Manitou Bedouin clans of the Sinai likely first unearthed turquoise known in ancient Egypt as Mafkat. The pharaohs sent expeditions into the Sinai to secure mineral deposits necessary for the monumental building projects that they were pursuing in the Nile Delta, and the workers dedicated the ruins to Hathor, the goddess of the turquoise land, the goddess of turquoise, and built temples in her honor to protect their mining. By the medieval period, however, the geography of turquoise and its trade had shifted to West, Central, and South Asia, to the so-called Persianate world, where turquoise was known as Firuze. The stone garnered such high esteem there that it came to be the name of Victorian dynast uh, victorious dynasties and of cities and mountains where it was not even to be found. The legendary lost city of Firuzku, or Turquoise Mountain, thought to have been near the blue-tiled minaret of Jam in the Hindu Kush of northwestern Afghanistan, was associated with the stone before the Mongols leveled it in the 13th century. Although there are no major turquoise deposits in its vicinity, northern Afghanistan being known more for the deposits of ballast rubies and lapis lazuli from Badakhshan, the sultans of the Ghurid Empire, this was a medieval dynasty, founded and envisioned Firuzku as a city of turquoise. And of course, we can take this even back 
to the Shahnameh and the idea of the turquoise throne which Rostam sits upon and Feridun wants to give desperately to his sons. This is an ancient kind of trope of Persian kingship. The source and inspiration uh, for this uh, now lost city of Turquoise Mountain could be found in the blue stones mined to the west outside of Nishapur. Now Nishapur is in a vast plain at the foot of the Bin Alud Mountains in the eastern Iranian province of Khorasan. For more than a thousand years these mountains have been the most important source of turquoise in the world. Along with Harat, Balkh and Marv the medieval city of Nishapur was among the most important urban centers in Western and Central Asia. It was a thriving oasis and entrepot along the Silk Roads and a cultural hub that was the birthplace of such Iranian uh, intellectuals and philosophers and figures as the mathematician and philosopher Omar Khayyam and the Sufi poet Attar. In the 12th and 13th centuries, repeated earthquakes exacerbated by the Mongols' sudden conquests uh, of the city in 1221 reduced Nishapur to a modest provincial town from what it had been in its glory days of the Jade Abresham. Despite this decline from its former stature, just a few miles north of Nishapur, were still to be found the most valuable turquoise mines on earth and the hub of the world turquoise trade. And I've tried to kind of label, oh, not I, but my, my dear friend uh, Gillian Schwartz, who drew these maps for me. Um, Despite this decline, so it remained the center and the hub of the global turquoise trade. By the 13th century, turquoise was mined in six valleys, about 35 miles north of Nishapur, in the villages of Madan. The most famous was the Abdul Razaghi, containing an old extensive mine of the same name, also known as the Abu Ishaghi, or Isaac's mine, so esteemed for the quality of its stones that the Persian poet Hafez hinted at it in a verse on the mutability of the earthly world. In truth, the turquoise ring of Abu Ishaq flashed finely, but then faded away. I believe the Persian is Rasti, Khatema Abu Ishaq, Khosh Terakhshid, Vali Dolat Mustajal Bud. The stones were taken from the mines to the nearby cities of Nishapur and Mashhad, where craftsmen cut them, pasted them onto strips of wood, and polished them on a grinding wheel. And shined with pieces of leather, the stones were set in rings, inlaid on metal objects, and arranged as tessera, then brought to markets across Asia and the Near East. Local miners extracted the turquoise from time to time, but not in any extensive way. Then, in the age of the post-Mongol Eurasian world empires, in the early modern period of trade, uh, circulation, um, everything about the culture of the turquoise trade changed. Under the Timurids, who reigned roughly from 1370 to 1510, and the Safavids, 1501 through 1722, dynasties, um, uh, the, through these dynasties, the turquoise mine of Nishapur reached their peak of production. And the stone became an object of imperial conquest 
uh, like never before, and it became integrated also into the Eurasian caravan trade. It's most likely because of this imperial connection uh, and the long-held belief that a rider carrying a piece of turquoise would never fall from his horse or see defeat that they would always be victor victorious, that the Persian word for turquoise, firuze, shares a root with the word victory, piruzi. In the Nishapur mines, local villagers unearthed turquoise still in its rock matrix, while above the ground, middlemen purchased the stones from the miners and traded them to the gem merchants in the nearby uh, shrine city of Mashhad. These merchants sorted, cut, polished uh, the turquoise before it traveled along overland caravan routes across Central Asia, South Asia, and the Near East. From the seven turquoise mines of Nishapur, sky blue stones were traded, gifted, looted, objects of exchange among the Timurids, Safavids, and Ottomans, and Mughals. Turquoise, stone, and color became immersed in the tributary economies of early modern Islamic empires in Iran, India, and Central Asia. This is really something that's at its core in the Eastern Islamic world, because of course we can find the culture of turquoise everywhere, but in, in many ways the heart of it is this Eastern, uh, what we could call for the lack of a better word, the Eastern Islamic world. Where the exchange of objects underlined the mediation of imperial power and sovereignty. Thus, the first Safavid monarch, Shah Ismail I, famously sent turquoise stones as gifts to Ismail Adil Shah of Goa in 1513 and to the Portuguese Admiral Alphonse de Albuquerque the following year. In 1544, Following his period of exile in the court of the Safavid Shah Tahmasp, the Mughal Emperor Humayun visited the turquoise mines of Nishapur on his way back to India, taking sky blue stones with him as he set out to reconquer his empire from the Suri Afghans. The stone also spread through wars and plunder. And here I'll show you some of the goods that were uh, potentially looted after the Battle of Chaldiran in 1514 from Tabriz and are now to be found uh, in the Topkapi Sarai Museum, such as uh, this turquoise-encrusted Quran, um, and uh, one of my own personal favorites, this uh, Safavid uh, Kolakhod that was looted by the Ottomans, um, again, uh, in the aftermath of the sacking of Ismail's uh, treasury in Tabriz uh, in 1514, where sort of the gunpowder-equipped armies of the Ottomans crushed the, the, the wine-soaked mounted archers of the, of the Ghazalbash. Uh, so this is another way, not only through trade and gift-giving, uh, but also through actual looting and plunder of war that we see uh, the stone uh, circulating. In addition to the physical object, the turquoise trade circulated the culture of the stone. And I think this is where, I think, in some ways, what my, my project most closely deals with. Objects carry meanings, and as the turquoise traveled, it left its meanings behind. The material culture of the stone was etched in Persian natural histories and books of precious stones, written in the context of imperial encounters with environments and the Earth's natural resources. As empires strove to order and convert the world of minerals, a subterranean terra incognita, 
These natural histories were exchanged in the course of interactions among the early modern Islamic empires of Eurasia, which shared a Central Asian and Persian cultural uh, connections. The most widespread meanings that turquoise took on were its function as a stone of imperial victory and power and as a celestial shade of blue. The world of the early modern Eurasian turquoise trade and its meanings can be entered and accessed through uh, the Persian and Islamic genre of the Jawahirnameh, or books of precious stones sponsored by the Timurid, Safavid, Mughal, and Ottoman empires. Uh, Muslim scholars drew on a rich tradition of medieval Arabic and Persian uh, natural histories of precious stones and minerals known as Ahjar al-Karimeh, or the great stones. Uh, and of course this goes all the way back to al-Biruni, who wrote the first surviving kind of book of stones that we have, but of course um, there's also a lost text by al-Kindi. So it's an old kind of tradition of Persian and Arabic scholars from the, from the Abbasid period, but here it really requires a new purchase. This is um, a Safavid uh, manuscript from the Majlis uh, library. Uh, originally, you know, so it's had a, you know, you can follow its course of all the different places it's been. It was once in, in, in Jafar Sultan al Garai's Tabriz Kitab Khone, but regardless, it ends up in the parliamentary library uh, where these texts have um, been made available. And this is uh, Muhammad ibn Mansur's Jawaharnameh. He was from a, a family of scribes in Shiraz. And this is, um, as far as we know, it was, it was written in 1465 uh, for the Agayun Lu, the white sheep dynasties of Tabriz. And this becomes the most widely circulating book of gems among the early modern um, um, Islamic uh, empires of the Ottomans, Mughals, and then the Safavids and later the Qajars. And this, you see, Actually, you see that the, the, I, I suspect there's some lapis lazuli uh, and gold in the very, very uh, title. And then you, you get into other uh, versions of the same text that are reproduced uh, um, over time. And these are the descriptions of the turquoise uh, that um, I'm, I'm laying here before you. Um, as we go through these texts, uh, this is actually uh, versions of the text that turned up in the Edward G. Brown collection uh, at Cambridge. Uh, this is actually an old Mongol Jawaharnameh known as Tansukhnameh Ilkhani, um, which uh, was was belonged to the libraries of certain Qajar princes that the Minister of the Mines, Albert Hotem Schindler, actually borrowed and then later kept and then donated to the Edward G. Brown collection in Cambridge, and which is how I was able to luckily access them. Uh, another amazing one, one of my own personal favorites, this is Rezaleh al Marifat Jawahir, also basically uh, 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 Muhammad ibn Mansur Jawahir Nameh. This was written right after the Battle of Chaldiran, uh, in honor of Sultan Salim, you see the annotation of Holzer's hand right there. And it basically one of the most interesting ones about this is that it, it goes on to um, um, compare Sultan Salim to all the jewels that are known. You know, like the, he's like a coral in the sea of discovery. At the end, you see he's a Firuz that Khanim Marifatha. Firuz bejang dar hamaja, Sultan Jahan Salim Sultan, you know, and, and, and that's sort of the end of it. But in the, it, that, that's sort of the verses that sort of commemorated the beginning. Um, this book on the knowledge of of jewels.
And one of the things that these texts did was to bring together not only um, scientific knowledge, but also economic knowledge. So what you get is a sense of where the stones came from, how they were traded, what they were valued at, and also this, this thing known as khasiyat, which can account for anything, the medicine, the superstitious ideas, the, the powers that are attached to these stones. Um, so it's on the one hand very economic, and, and on the other hand very scientific, and by scientific, of course, it's connected to the world of alchemy here, uh, and the sort of the alchemical planetary associations of gems, yes? Um, I'm just reading a story about jadeite, also delivered to the Chinese by Muslims, um, and they say they have lots of powers to sell you know, jadeite to the Chinese, including luck and improves your sex life. And so are, are, is turquoise also uh, accredited with such power? Um, yes, I'm getting to that, yes. Okay. But it's more, um, less about sex, more about love. So, <laughs> so, to put it that way, like for instance, if a stone fades, right, um, and a lover gave that to you, that's a sign of maybe a fading love. Or if you're wearing a stone, and it, I mean, this could maybe tie into sexuality, but I mean, if a stone fades, it could be a sign of the health of the wearer. And these are ideas that are attached to the stone as it's being used in Iran, in India, and of course, these ideas are transferred to Europe, which also is an interesting thing to think about when we think about science diffusing right from Europe towards the so-called East. Here's a clear chance in which the knowledge of stones, along with the stones itself, is clearly coming from Iran in this case. Um, so these Jawaharnames, and we can talk more about this later, um, Aviv Mansur describes precious stones, the Jawaharat of the world, in 20 chapters with turquoise. Turquoise is usually the eighth one that he mentions, and then they get into the so-called felizat, or the metals. And just um, the first on the, on, the, on the list is usually um, uh, the pearl which is uh, identified as being found in the islands of the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf, Sri Lanka, and perhaps Burma. Uh, although the idea of Burma is very shady at this moment. It's kind of known as the Zirbad. Um, rubies, sapphires, Sri Lanka, I'm sorry, Yagut as they're known. For the pearl, we, the Dur, the Marvarid, or the Lulu, as it's known in these, some of these texts. The emerald, Zumrud which was not actually identified as coming from Colombia, as we would think, but was thought to have come from Egypt, particularly Aswan, Topaz, Zabarjad from Egypt, uh, Diamond, Almas from India, Cat's Eye, Ain al from Sri Lanka, which is, was seen as like this, you know, the, the word serendipity comes from the Persian word for Ceylon, Sarandip, which tells you about, you know, just the magical flora, fauna, and minerals and gems that Iranians thought you could find at this magical, magical island. Turquoise, Firuze, of course you know where that's from, Nishapur, Carnelian, Agik, where's the best Agik? Who said Yemen? Yes, very nice. Yemen, um, Sana or Aden in particular, Garnet, Banafsh from Afghanistan, also Lajavad, Lapis Lazuli, and Marjan, Coral, the best of which was thought to come from the Mediterranean and Tunisia. 
As turquoise, moving on here, um, was embedded in, in, the, in the culture of kingship and empire across Islamic Eurasia and known as a victorious stone. Uh, actually, I moved ahead too fast there. Uh, a, a victorious stone uh, of conquest. There it was three things that it was referred to. First, Hajr al-Qalabe, the stone of conquest. Hajr al-Jah, the stone of honor. And then um, uh, Hajr al-Ain, the stone of the eye, because supposedly at the first moon, at the first thing in the morning, if you were to gaze upon the turquoise, it would make your day auspicious, right? That's the main thing that's connected with the culture of the stone, that it is, it is, a, it is a lucky stone. The Safavids placed the turquoise mines of Nishapur under direct imperial control. References in imperial history suggest, for instance, that under Tahmas, uh, the state levied a 20% tax on the turquoise mines, and that the minister, uh, the vazir of Khorasan, acted as the prospector and overseer uh, of the mines, keeping their accounts as part of the administration of Khorasan. On some occasions, portions of the turquoise, stones, and dust, that it accrued in the royal treasury were distributed among the poor uh, students and people from walk of every life, the ulama, the sayyids. Shah Abbas, however, put the mining and trade of turquoise from the valuable old rock uh, and all its output under royal monopoly. This policy was in keeping with his mercantile tendencies and, cons and concerted efforts at establishing control over the empire, its resources, and its trade as a means of expanding the Safavid economy and its export revenues. Um, so uh, in doing so, uh, he tried to, in, in, in a sense, um, pursue what we could, for lack of a better word, pursue a kind of a mercantilist monopoly of the turquoise trade. And in the Safavid period, new turquoise mines were open to meet the global demand for the stone. But the specimens from the new rock were inferior to the old rock. So basically, what the, the, the premium gems all went to the Shah. And what he left behind could then maybe reach the world. But from these newer mines, those could be mined and traded. The voyages of the French jeweler, merchant, and journeyman extraordinaire Jean Chardin led to the most significant, by far, of the early modern travel accounts of Safavid Iran and the most detailed descriptions of the empire's turquoise. He was the son of a Huguenot jeweler uh, who first journeyed to Asia on behalf of his father in 1665 in search of diamonds. Traveling through Isfahan on his way to India, he gained access to the court of Shah Abbas II, who appointed him a royal merchant and commissioned him to purchase jewels and patterned jewelry based on the Shah's own designs. As might be expected, Chardin's account of his travels, the monumental voyage in Paris, which is in many ways still the best European travel account uh, of Iran, uh, surveys in detail the mining and trade of metal and precious stones in the Safavid Empire. In the third volume of Voyage in Paris, Chardin gives an intriguing account of the empire's turquoise mines and says that these are the richest mines in Persia, the turquoise of Nishapur. He describes heaps of turquoises amassed like a harvest in the Safavid treasury, 
One sees a chamber full of turquoise. The stones, rough and uncut, are piled high on the floor like heaps of grain, and the polished stones fill innumerable big sacks of leather, weighing 50 pounds each. On other occasions, Chardin observed the lavish, extravagant uses to which the Safavids put the stones, as encrusting swords, which then encrusted swords, which with the state would give as gifts of honor, or khilat. Um, and in his travels through the Safavid realm in the 17th century, Chardin really encountered a culture of imperial regalia studded in turquoise stones. European printed texts um, from this era uh, on mining and metallurgy uh, also detailed the turquoise. One of the first of the texts that we have are, are by Sir John the Mandeville, actually, um, uh, who wrote a book on, these are lapidary texts, and he described all these various stones to be encountered in Asia. Um, and, a, and another interesting one uh, is um, Camillus Leonardus's text, The Mirror of Stones, uh, Speculum Lapidum, uh, written originally in 1502, uh, which is a description of the nature, generation, uh, properties, and virtues of, of stones, their various uses. Uh, this was a, very much a scientific account of the turquoise. It talked about its color and its physical properties, and yet um, it also covers the magical properties of engrained gems and the planetary associations of ring stones, such as turquoise, writing on the peculiar sympathies of precious stones toward the planet, Leonardus identifies turquoise as the gem of Saturn. A turquoise stone set on a ring of lead, Saturn's metal, was a zodiacal talisman that could affect one's spirits and even cure the symptoms of melancholy. So there you see, uh, again, this kind of medicinal purpose. Uh, perhaps most interestingly of all, though, when we trace the meanings of the stone, was that as the turquoise trade spread, um, through Timurid Central Asia, Safavid Iran, and Mughal India, the stone became converted into an imperial sacred object projected in vivid, radiant color displays in the blue-tiled cities of the Eastern Islamic world. Here we have a kind of artistic representation of the turquoise dome. This is the famous turquoise of Islam mosque, Firuze Islam or Masjid al-Kabud in Tabriz in a state of ruins here in the 19th century. But to kind of give you a richer sense of what I'm talking about, here's some um, images, uh, more recent images of, of the mosque in Tabriz. Um, its color marked the metropolitan architecture of oasis cities along the trade routes of Islamic Eurasia, visible from Timurid Samarkand and Harat to Tabriz of the White and the Black Sheep dynasties, and from Safavid Isfahan, which I'll just get to next, which is sort of the peak of this architectural style, uh, to the Friday Mosque of Shah Jahan in Tata in the Mughal province of Sindh. Tile makers and ceramicists applied the shades of turquoise and azure to glazed tiles fired in kin kilns. Mixing roasted copper, lead, and tin, craftsmen produced the color firuze. From cobalt and roasted copper came the night blue azure known as lajavad. Set on the surfaces of mosques, madrasas, and mausoleums, glazed polychrome tessera, fired in the blues of Islam, connected imperial cities and urban spaces across the Timurid, Safavid, and Mughal imperiums.
These imperial cities lay astride the historic overland trade routes that link together the steppes of the Oxus, India, and Iran. In guiding the flow of merchants, pilgrims, and travelers, this chain of trade routes and oasis cities facilitated the spread of goods and commodities through the caravanserais and bazaars of Eurasia. Such trade goods included the opaque blue precious stones of Khorasan, the turquoise of Nishapur, and the lapis lazuli of Badakhshan, as well as the pigmented earths and mineral ores, cobalt oxides, and copper ores that supplied the substance necessary for the blues of Islamic imperial architecture. The use of blue as the celestial shade and unifying color of imperial architecture in Central Asia, Iran, and India closely paralleled the expansion of the turquoise trade. A great number of these monuments were mosques and shrines, and thus as places of pilgrimage, ziyarat, contributed to the expansion of traffic and trade along the crossroads of Eurasian empires. This architecture was visible to the pilgrims and merchants who passed to and from these cities. And again, um, this was created through the, the, the Persian art of ceramics, or kashigari, and, and it was from cobalt that was actually f mined uh, in the village of Kamsar, in the mountains around Kashan, that came a deep blue that had the same name as the mineral lajavard. So lapis lazuli in Persian is lajavard, and cobalt in Persian is also lajavard. And these, cobalt is what creates this this darker night blue color and and in the case of um, uh, creating turquoise it was roasted copper iron and tin that were mixed together and fired in the kilns uh, onto the tiles and these these colored er, uh, um, earths were employed on a wide scale in the Timurid imperial architecture of Central Asia the Timurids were the trendsetters in many ways aesthetically um, for this this vision of a kind of an urban imperial metropolitan capital um, and it was it was from from places such as uh, Samarkand, Herat that this this style emanated by the 17th century blue ceramic tiles adorned the walls of arches minarets and domes of Friday mosques known as Masjid al-Jameh madrasas, mausoleums, and Sufi shrines. Signature features of this new metropolitan style etched the skyline of cities in blues. The dome chamber in Persian, Gombad, a lofty geometrical interior space that was a microcosm of the world, which you see right here in the, in the Masjid al-Shah in the Maidan and Naqsha Jahan, or the pattern of the world in Isfahan. This is the interior courtyard. Um, the minaret. The minaret from which was sounded uh, the call to prayer. The arched gateway, or the pishtag, and the barrel vaulted chamber, Ivan, which led inside the structures and the intricate honeycomb corbel vault, Moranas, that pleased the eye. Thus, from its distant point of origin, in mines on the eastern marches of Iran, turquoise emerged into an emblematic object of inter-imperial exchange among the tributary empires of Central Asia, South Asia, and the Near East. The stone's trade and its culture peaked in the reign of the Safavid Empire, but then fell fast. 
1722, a tribal rebellion originating in Gandahar, the so-called graveyard of empires originally, although no one uh, brings the Safavids into the conversation, an object of Indo-Persian contention in the 17th century, as you recall, toppled the Safavids. A tribal rebellion and movement of the Galzai Pashtuns of Gandahar, led by Shah Mahmud Hotaki, marched on Isfahan, laid the Persian capital to siege, and ended the Safavid Empire for good with ruinous consequences for the turquoise trade. With the state no longer in control of the turquoise industry, standards were forgotten, and the most valuable mines of the old rock, Madana Qadim, were abandoned and fell into ruin. A century of dynastic instability followed, and that's indeed what the 18th century in Iran is. Various interregnums, um, Afghans, Afshars, Zand, ultimately Ghajars, with no effort to revive the turquoise mines until the 1880s in the reign of the Ghajars. By then, however, the model of Islamic tributary empires in which turquoise had been ingrained as part of the projection and display of imperial fortune and power, the exercise of a symbolic, indirect, and layered sovereignty had given way to new, more blunt, and coercive forms of empire established by the colonial states and economies of the late 19th century. The 19th century, the 19th century gold rush um, and global quest for precious metals and stones transformed the Eurasian turquoise trade. 19th century was powered by telegraphs, modern roads and rails, steam and print. It saw the emergence of a more thoroughly globalized economy. The increased supply of and demand for gems, as well as more rapid means of transporting them that linked together geographical spaces as never before, brought precious stones into mass consumption. The economy of this 19th century trade penetrated more deeply as stones came into the possession of different strata of society. Responding to the global demand for sartorial and other decorative jewels and ornaments, workers around the world mined the earth or ventured to the depths of the sea in search of precious stones and gems. Empires and prospectors rediscovered and attempted to restore ruined turquoise mines, seeking to reclaim desert nature and profit from the stone's global commerce. In the 1840s, following the, on the heels of late 18th and early 19th century European exploration of ancient Egypt's ruins, monuments, and environments, a Scottish cavalry officer, uh, Charles MacDonald, set out to reopen the Sinai turquoise mines. He moved out to the land of turquoise with his family, built a house of stone, enlisted local Bedouin, whom he equipped with gunpowder for mining, and strove for years uh, to revive the buried mines of the ancient Egyptians. Actually, the stones faded uh, from blue. They weren't as blue as the Persian ones, and he died um, penniless in Cairo after basically selling his giant collection of archaeology, archaeological, uh, um, um, what's the word? His collection of archaeological ruins that he'd gathered as an Egyptologist. Um, news of the demand of the riches of the earth and discovery um, of vast mineral uh, wealth worldwide also rekindled the interest of the Qajar dynasty in uh, the turquoise mines of Nishapur. 
By the 19th century, tales and reports of the finding of gold in the New World, or the other side of the world, literally, Yenge Donya, had reached the Qajar court circles. There had been um, circulation, uh, these, these stories of the New World had been in circulation uh, in the Middle East and South Asia since the 16th century in such Muslim accounts of discovery and conquest um, uh, as Tariq Hind al Qarbi, or the history of the West Indies. Um, this was uh, the Tariq Hind al Qarbi is a compilation of contemporary Spanish and Portuguese travel accounts translated into Turkish and re rearranged. A widely circulating version appeared from the presses of uh, Ibrahim Muttafereka in Istanbul in 1729, and a Persian translation was produced in Mughal India. Tariq Hind al Garbi presents the basic narrative of Muslim histories of the New World, chronicling the first voyages of discovery and Kashaf, Columbus finding the Americas, and the subsequent conquests and creation of colonies, which brought into Europe's possession vast lands and abundant resources, including silver, nogre, and gold tada. And in 1871, the Qajar dynasty commissioned the history uh, of the New World tari uh, entitled Tariq and Kashafi Yengedonya, based on earlier works, most notably this earlier history of the West Indies, and this was dedicated to Nasruddin Shah Qajar. The closing chapters cover the defeat and eclipse of indigenous Mesoamerican tributary empires and the European appropriation of vast resources and colonies in the New World. Several chapters are devoted to the conquistador Hernan Cortez's voyage to the Yucatan Peninsula and encounters with the Aztec Empire and the subsequent conquest of Mexico. A subsequent chapter covers the voyages of Francisco Pizarro and his conquest of the Incaic Empire. Tariq and Kishafi Yengedonya ends with an account of the Spanish discovery of the Potosi silver mines in the Andes Mountains, which set off a gold rush of quote-unquote Farangis to the New World in the 1540s and 1550s. They mined such a quantity of silver, uh, it was written, that 300 years, for 300 years large ships equipped with cannon hauled silver from the New World to Spain. And it was the silver of this mine that became the basis of the wealth of the world, Abadiyya Jahan. Although the Qajar dynasty had no aspirations to a world empire and was vexed just simply to govern and administer uh, its own provinces, Tales of the New World and its abundant natural resources gradually led it to make more assertive efforts to reclaim, extract, and export the mineral wealth that lay below the soil of Iran. Since the mid-19th century, news of the Americas had also appeared in Persian newspapers and gazetteers that wrote about the gold rush in California. In the early 1850s, the lithograph Persian imperial gazetteer, Ruznameh Vagaeh Etefagieh, ran stories of the discovery of vast mines of gold, Tala, in California. It was reported that people from all around the world, including immigrants from China, were flocking to the state in search of gold. And in an 1852 edition of Ruznameh Vagaeh the discovery of gold in the Sierra Nevada uh, mountains is led to American imperial expansion westward. It writes, the government of the U.S. of 
the government of the United States of the Northern New World, was always seeking to conquer land, Mamlekat Giri. And since it was discovered that in California, um, since gold was discovered in California, which had for some time belonged to the people of Spain in Mexico, it is now part of the country of the Northern New World. The Tarikh Montazam Nasiri further details the gold rush in a section on events on Amrika, announcing that an engineer in the New World has unearthed a gold mine, Madane Talai, on the banks of the Salarmanto, which we take, of course, as the Sacramento, in the San Juanique Valley, the San uh, Joaquin Valley, and from all directions people came to California. Tales like these of the gold rush in California and earlier New World bonanzas printed in the 19th century, um, Persian histories, newsletters, and gazetteers spurred the Qajars to explore and utilize the mineral resources of Iran. Uh, becoming conscious of a global quest for precious minerals, the Qajar states strove to recover and reclaim the once famed turquoise mines of Nishapur. And these can be traced through a particularly interesting account a lithographed history of Mashhad and Khorasan known as Matla Shams, the land of the rising sun that was written um, under the auspices of Muhammad Hassan Khan Saniye Dolleh Etemal Saltaneh who is uh, Nasiruddin Shah's dragoman and royal attendants and minister of publications quite a prolific um, um, Certainly we know he didn't write all of it, he had help, but um, left behind a major body of text. And it is through this text that I first stumbled onto the turquoise mines, um, and it was written in 1882 to commemorate the Shah's second pilgrimage, Nasruddin Shah's second pilgrimage to Mashhad. And thus, this second pilgrimage to Mashhad in 1882 becomes the, the point for commemorating, uh, for re revitalizing and reclaiming uh, the, the turquoise mines of Nishapur. In a way, to kind of bring its output to the, to the global market. Because before that time, the Qajars were willing to just farm out the right to the turquoise mines to the highest bidder, who and then farmed it out to the local villagers of the Madan. Right? And now this is an effort to sort of bring it under further under state control. And what happens in line with this policy is that Mirza Ali Ambarshin, Mirza Ali Golikhan Mokhbere a Dar al-Fanun educated minister of the sciences and mines acquired a 15-year lease of the mines while Albert Hotem Schindler, who I mentioned earlier, um, having found his books of jewels, who was the Persian minister of telegraphs since 1876 and a major orientalist, probably the most talented of the Persians in a way that Brown even looked, looked up to him, um, was appointed the director of operations and given the task of monopolizing the turquoise trade on behalf uh, of the state. And what's interesting is that he worked with Etemad Saltaneh to essentially write a report of the mines that appeared in Persian in Matla Shams. And, and interestingly enough, the sources for this account, as well as their own treading around the mines of, of, 
of uh, the, the Nishapur turquoise region was Jawahar Namez. And they were referring to the, you know, the, again, so this is continuing of a genre, but now it's a printed 19th century genre that's also now influenced by kind of European developmentalist printed geographical ideas. So sort of this more Persian style of uh, writing about stones, encountering a kind of a new 19th century way. And of course, Madlaya Shams uh, makes it very clear of course, you know, they all like to begin with the color of turquoise. It's the most important quality. The, the, the color of turquoise is the color of the sky. Range asamani. Not the sky that touches the horizon where, um, where the earth and sky meet, but the very top of the sky, Santal Ross. The color was entwined with another more ineffable characteristic referred to in the language of the, the jewelers and the Hakakan, the jewel cutters, as the stone's zot, a quality and a beauty that only experts could see and that words could not explain. Put simply, if a, if a turquoise did not possess zot, it was seen as flawed. In the newer minds, on the other hand, turquoises of great beauty and size were found, but their color soon faded away. The general tone of Madlaya Shams, as it depicts the minds of, of turquoise, is that these minds are lying in a state of ruin and far from what they had been during the reign of the Safavids. A number of attempts were made to clear them, and this includes the Abdul Razaki mine, which finally collapses in the late 19th century. But um, th there were very um, precarious conditions for work, and miners tended to avoid them. For instance, uh, one of the mines, there were only three or four miners that dared to work in one of the oldest mines, which was known as Dareku. Uh, they actually had a nickname for it, which was called Pole Sarat, or a bridge in hell, because it was so eerie and scary to have to go into there and come out and dig for turquoise stones. I mean, your survival wasn't necessarily assured, even though these weren't very deep mines. They had fallen into disarray. All the galleries that the Safavids had built uh, to allow for ventilation, lighting, um, they had fallen into disarray and had crumbled because of the use of gunpowder. Another, another mine had crumbled and filled up in its tunnels. Um, it, it came to be known as Qarebi Rahro, the cave without a path. Another one was known as Cherakush, or the killers of light, because of the lack of oxygen wouldn't even allow you to um, light your lantern. Um, from what we understand of the, of the circuit of this trade was that the miners themselves, uh, they worked in these mines and they didn't know the quality of the stones. They brought it out of the mines and these, these stones were then taken and I'll give you a, a fantastic image. I was so excited when I found this in the Golestan Palace Museum. Uh, this is by Abdullah Khan Qajar, the royal photographer in 1894. And it kind of shows you what goes on. This is actually the Raiz mine, one of the newer mines with, the, with kind of fading turquoise. Um, but what would happen is that you had 25, say or so, Madanchi in the mine actually working, and they would 
they didn't know what the quality of the stones were. They, they would bring them out in, in, in pails that they would send up to the surface in their rough state, and then they would be sorted through. There were certain um, um, head miners known as Rish Sefid, actually. And then they would connect with the merchants in Nishapur and Mashad, who would then cut the stones, polish the stones, set them on rings. Uh, as far as we know, there were three kinds of three grades. There was the Angoshtari, the best that were placed on rings. There was a barkhane, which could be used to, for instance, encrust uh, saddles, weapons of war, and finally Arabi, which was the grade that was taken on pilgrimages to Mecca. Um, so, uh, you know, um, generally the miners themselves, they barely cut even, but uh, the, the Mashad and the Nishapur gem cutters who had commission agents in Europe made uh, a, a, good, a good profit, um, although uh, it should be noted that this was ultimately, a, a, as I, it wasn't an industry that brought major wealth to the state. And it is, it is for this reason that the state ultimately abandoned this project to reclaim um, these mines. Um, why is this so? I mean, part of the reason, and I'll, I'll get to these in my conclusion, uh, which is that the whole economic and imperial world in which kind of the turquoise trade became what it was had changed. The rediscovery of the turquoise mines of the American Southwest, the last chapter in the 19th century, quest to reopen the lost mines of the stone, marked the ebb of the Eurasian turquoise trade. The most valuable mines of old rock near Nishapur had fallen into ruin by the 1880s. And the Qajar scheme to reestablish an imperial monopoly on turquoise following the Safavid model proved largely ineffective in restoring the mines of the old rock. The old Abdul Razaki mine with the most brilliant turquoise known in the world lay ruined and abandoned as newly opened Persian mines supplied the market with stones of the fast fading new rock and the flawless sky blue stones of Nishapur were rarely to be found. The recently uncovered turquoise mines in, in the American Southwest were opened up also here commercially for the first time, offering an alternative source of unfading blue stones uh, that transformed the patterns and meanings of the global turquoise trade. The discovery of turquoise deposits in the New World meant that the mineral compound was not so scarce as to be found only in Iran. This substance was in rocks and strata of very similar composition on the other side of the world. Turquoise became more common, no longer a rare and peregrine stone exported from the distant east. Along the way, its material culture as a sacred object of sovereignty and imperial exchange, and as the color of the urban architecture of Eurasian empires moving between the step and the stone, the step in the stone faded away. I think um, this is a rather telling um, picture of the blue ruins of the turquoise of Islam Mosque um, 400 years after its construction. This is by Luigi Montabon, also from the Golestan Palace. Um, of course, this, this, this mosque is now known as Masjid al-Kabud, or the black and blue, or the bruise mosque. Um, and in some ways, it, it refers to the darker blue, but also I mean, it's, it's clear that this is, um, this is sort of the debris of a world that is no longer. So by way of just conclusions, I'd like to offer three short ones. 
The first is that um, what can we learn about the story of turquoise through the story of turquoise? One thing I hope, and, and Professor Milani suggested this in the beginning, uh, in the introduction, was that the tangled threads of the histories of the world regions we call the Middle East, Central Asia, and South Asia. This account breaks away from the familiar and overarching, uh, over-anticipating narrative of the gunpowder empires, marking the beginnings of the transition towards becoming bounded and separated national territories, Iran, India, Afghanistan. Central Asia, South Asia, and the Middle East, as viewed through the history of the turquoise and its trade, are regions open to the world, the setting of interlinked Eurasian empires that were a point of origin in the export and transfer of peoples, commodities, and ideas across the globe. The second conclusion, um, and related conclusion concerns what is commonly referred to uh, as the European age of exploration and discovery and revolution in trade. Asia and the Middle East, um, as I've tried to suggest, were not simply a distant orient ripe to be explored and discovered by European trading companies and empires, not a mere colonial outpost uh, and periphery to be influenced, conquered, and taken from the outside. This is sort of my problem with the Emanuel Wallerstein kind of view of, uh, which peripheralizes um, non-Europe in its account of world history. The early modern Eurasian turquoise trade was fostered through the emergence of Islamic empires of pastoral nomadic origin that moved from the tent to the throne. These were indigenous empires that encountered environments and mined resources um, that built imperial cities and urban spaces that became integrated into routes of trade and travel linking the Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia with the wider world. And finally, um, while making a claim for the buoyancy of the economies and empires of early modern uh, Eurasia, it is clear that by the arrival of the 19th century, something significant had changed. And it is here that the history of the turquoise trade parallels what has come to be known as the Great Divergence or Divergence Theory. By the turn of the 19th century, European imperial access to colonies and resources from the New World suddenly broke the commensurability and equivalence that formerly existed between Asian and European economies into early modern times. Shifts in the structures of Eurasian empires and global economic exchanges from the early modern to the colonial periods are important to take into consideration here. First, the imperial shift. The eclipse of Eurasian tributary empires. These were vast, multi-ethnic imperiums that ruled through the collection of tributes and revenues from subjects and satellite kingdoms absorbed into the, into the empire through a layered sovereignty. The eclipse of these Eurasian tributary empires by colonial empires and their more blunt and coercive measures of rule that did not have to do with the display and the projection of an imperial aura and power, but the blunt force to be able to go out and get what it wanted. And finally, also the Asian economic shift from the export of luxuries to the export of raw materials. Um, in the case of Iran, um, we see here the shift from Iran as an exporter of luxuries such as silks, textiles, and precious stones to raw materials such as opium, tobacco, and finally oil, which completely 
alter the dynamic of its relation to the global economy. Sure, I'm sorry if that went a bit long. Yes. So, besides, uh, besides this precious stone, what other resources or natural resources were commodities or that, that would serve the currency of, uh, of revenue for the court and, and the administration of its governance. Sure. If you, you focused on this one precious stone, mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious to know what other raw materials or resources in parallel were also uh, in consideration and, and, and to what extent were they subject to the same fate? Absolutely. Well, the main ways in which I think this tributary um, economies functioned was not through just these sort of luxuries and these symbolic gifts, also through agricultural goods, right, where they were produced. Or, you know, when you go to the Bakhtiari, they were actually divided according to the number of sheep that, that they had to give. Uh, to the to the to the Safavid state, so you have agrarian and pastoral goods, which are at the center, right? As you can imagine, that actually feed and are the backbone of the empire. Um, now, but to get to these stones and, and metals and these kinds of commodities, and there, and water is actually another thing that we should think about. Of course, there's the major project in which uh, Shah Abbas actually tries to divert the Karun River to flow into Zayandarut so that Isfahan has more water. So there's these sorts of projects being pursued as well. Uh, it's unsuccessful, by the way. Um, but the, as far as metals, for instance, like Iran has um, copper, silver, iron, but these were mined very ambivalently. Largely, I think, because, first of all, the flow of silver is coming in, right, beginning in the 16th century from, from, the, from the West. And so they're getting silver from there. They're sometimes getting it from Japan. So they have no interest in really, they're very ambivalent miners of metals of this sort. Right? Um, so the metals, and, and they have no interest in that. Now, but that's a certain kind of bullionist way to look at, you know, how they value their metals, right? Because, you know, the fact that they don't, or their, or their miner, mineralia of their empire. Um, so the, the economic historians that have worked on this, and, you know, I, I can just cite scholars such as Willem Floor and Rudy Maté, are, are all right on this, that this is a very ambivalent, state in terms of how it mined its metals. Now, they may not have been interested in copper, but they were interested in the flowers of copper. They were interested in the beautiful stones like Lajavad, like Firuze, or the pearls that came from the Persian Gulf. These were the things. So, in some ways, um, I love the work of James Allen, um, the art historian, and you know, what he does with, for instance, the interpretation of metals. It's a whole different um, view of how the Safavids saw the wealth of these materials, right? They didn't make coins out of them necessarily, right? Uh, uh, but they were part of the whole regalia and power of the empire. 
Also, though, I should say that there were certain parts of the economy that were monetized, like large-scale silk trade. For that kind of commercial economy, you needed that. You needed coins and you needed coinage. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and, of course, the whole minting of the coin, too, right? You know, the, the, the khutbah, all of this has a sort of a symbolic, also, the, the, that sort of revenue system in terms of has, has a kind of a symbolic element as well. To what extent were they limited by by uh, the, the technology that's required to yeah. mine into these uh, yeah. natural resources and assets, because the pictures you depict of, of the miners, it looks like, okay, this is something that they were capable of doing, but perhaps if you were going after copper or, or silver. That could be. That requires something beyond what was available to them. And when we said, so a second related question is, what, at what point if any, was there signs of concessions actually uh, to mine these? To mine these things were conceived of, and, and did it go back as far back as the Sabbath era? You mean concessions? Concessions, concessions to Europe? Yeah, to concessions to foreign entities or foreign groups uh, that that would would make these investments, or did that really begin mostly in the Qajar period? You know, the age of concessions, right? That's a, that you're talking about the Nasseri period, kind of clearly, but. There is this mysterious reference, and I was not able to identify who. It might have been one of the Shirleys. Um, Shah Abbas supposedly had uh, someone that was working on ways for him to uh, kind of use and utilize the metals, the minerals of his empire. But it was just you know faint references that I found. In terms of the technology, certainly we know what they were doing for the turquoise, because turquoise isn't that deep. It's in the kind of the, in the zone of oxidation. And what we hear, or the, the, the Safavids techniques, were actually far more sophisticated than you know what was later even pursued, given the sort of the blunt force of, of, of gunpowder, which destroyed the galleries of the, of, the, of the oldest mines. But yeah, that's an, that's an interesting question. Do you have your book also translated in Farsi? Or? No, I, not, neither of my books have been translated. I was supposed to get in touch with a publisher for my first book, which was on the Bakhtiari, actually ended with the story of the discovery of oil, Masjid al-Sulaiman. Um, so I've sort of, in some ways, I guess, been playing around with the idea of the extraction of, of, of resources from your... Um, from Iran, um, no, they haven't been. But I'm, I'm hoping. I, it's just a matter of, you know, I, I have a couple now, and I'd like to find the right, right translator, and um, would, would really love to have audiences read it, if, if there's interest. Yes? There are some copies of the book outside, uh, available for purchase and for signature by the author. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just want to follow up on the translation. I think you have only two years before changing the things that right now uh, publishing the book is easier. Okay. <laughs> I just want to give you some time. To <laughs> <laughs> you mean in Iran? Tajam Akhaidan? Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm always well. Um, I'm always looking to you know make contacts in that in that field, and I mean I I I have some leads, but again it all it all has to do with like the quality and the, the work. Iran is just a video. I'm sorry, I think you had a question? No? No. no. Oh, sorry. Okay. So, potentially a silly question. How do we know what 
it's made of what turquoise is made of. I mean, you mentioned, I think, aluminum and uh, cobalt around them. Is it, I mean, they put it in a microscope, or is there some, how do they know what you know, goes into the um, well, this um, it was, it's, it's in the 19th century, right, that they began to really break it down in terms of its hardness and the very. But but the main um, the main I, I believe it's like 40 percent phosphorus phosphate, and then uh, about like 29 percent aluminum, and only like six percent copper. But it's that copper that gives it its 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 defining color. I you know I. They, um, when you read the Javaharnameh literature, that sort of, of knowledge isn't in there. What they talk about are the four elements of, of you know, earth, fire, you know, uh, water, and air, and, and how all of these elements sort of emanate from there. Now, once you get into... Um, the 19th century, maybe even the late 18th, but particularly the 19th, you have, you know, you have that early modern kind of mineralogical metallurgy texts, which are coming out of the early modern Europe, right, that I showed you a glimpse of. And they're, they're kind of caught in these two worlds. They're, on the one hand, interested in Newtonian ideas about how everything's been so clearly defined um, and on the other hand they're caught in the romance and sort of the the mysticism of these of these of these Persian texts which are scientific but they're rooted in this idea of the ajayib the ajib uh, you know the strange and the wonderful things in the world but it's only in the 19th century that you start reading about you know what happens if they burn a turquoise or put it under a, micro a microscope and and it's it's that moment where and one could say it's it's in that moment when that knowledge is found out, right? That the mystery of, of this of this sort of regal stone is in some ways lost. I don't know, but it's I, I first ran into that kind of detailed information in the in the 19th century. Although, however, we have in these texts on Kashigari or on on the I mean, because some of these gem books have like a, appendums at the end. And in those, they talk about the different kinds of minerals you need, as I mentioned, like cobalt and copper, to go into creating these colors. Right? Yes? So, did the stone, uh, was the tactile properties of the stone celebrated? And were these properties either the color or the tactile or were they, uh, was it lionized in song or poetry beyond what you've mentioned with the, uh, with the addendums to the mineralogy? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot about, you know, if you read Jami, for instance, there's a lot about, like, the turquoise dome and not a poetry specialist in that regard. But in terms of the tangible, you mean in terms of touching it? Or, or her eyes were such the color of turquoise. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, the whole idea of the evil eye, right? And how, like, the turquoise becomes, you know, part of this, this thing that wards off sort of the evil eyes. You often notice, like, this is sort of the, the, talis the talisman, yeah. So it has a very discreet talismanic quality, right? I mean, is that what you mean by tactile? Like, like how it's touching? What's that? Or the folklore, if you want. Or the... Yeah, I mean the folklore. I mean the scorpion bites, 
It would, it would hear glaucoma and eye. I mean, so I mean, we have references to you know blind animals having turquoise dust thrown into their eyes, which is you know obviously not a, a, a you know going to work. But there are these, um, yeah. That's uh, as I said, it's often tied to notions of uh, curing melancholy. Um, it even turns up in the Merchant of Venice, if you know that passage. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. But um, yeah, thank you. One. Another question? Uh, my question was, uh, like according to Islamic or Persian belief, what's the spiritual value of uh, turquoise? I guess it's similar to this question. Because although gold and, and moss, um, uh, diamond, they're not haram, but they're like you, for men, mm-hmm. men. But all the ulamas, you know, they all were to turquoise, even khatami always was very Absolutely, and they have the aqig yes. on the other one, right? Right, yes. I, I, it has to do what I would suggest with this idea of good fortune and luck and a kind of a, 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 the power of piruzi, believe it or not, right? I mean, even a, a Sharia-minded jurist—that's the interesting thing—could, you know, adhere to some of these these sorts of ideas about the astral powers of gems. Not to mention the tasbih beads, which are often also right. Made of different, yeah, stones, yeah. Could could you repeat um, what uh, what kind of turquoise you take on your on a Hajj? Uh, to, if you go on the Hajj or to, if you go to Mecca, you take a certain kind. Oh, oh, those are just different grades. Ah. So, like for instance, the the premium grades, and these are this is also how you buy it, right? I mean, when you go to the mines, if you want to get the, you know, you can get a. a a stone that you identify is a, is a really beautiful stone that you can make a ring stone out of, angoshtar, which is called angoshtari. These are the, and you usually buy these by the piece. And then there are kind of other, kind of more where you're kind of taking a chance. You may buy a bag of turquoise, you can buy it in bulk, who knows what you're going to find in there. You know, and so then you get different grades, and one of them is the barkhane, as I suggested, which were used to kind of encrust saddles, bridles, weapons of war, and then finally a version um, in a kind of typical Iranian fashion that kind of puts, you know, the Arabi is, you know, the being that the final grade it mentioned. But that just means that this is something you take to Mecca. Right, and the, the whole notion of the stone and its connection to pilgrimage. I mean, you mentioned Islam, right? I mean, there's the whole um, because one thing that's interesting is when Gohar Shad builds, you know, the Imam Reza complex, right, and 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 commissions that. That's right when the turquoise trade is thriving. So the whole idea of ziyarat and making, you know, I still, you know, my, my family's from Khorasan and I know one of the things you do when you go to Mashhad is you get turquoise, you get a turquoise ring or Nishap, they have the specific part of the turquoise of the, of the bazaar. So it became tied with the culture of Imam Reza and going and making pilgrimage as well. And so in that way, uh, it also very tangibly connects. To these, and it's interesting how, like you know, the right, the the, the the roots of pilgrimage, the roots of trade and travel, can affect even the art aesthetics of urban spaces. Well, that might be a good place to finish. Uh, I think so. Bring us good luck. Inshallah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Yes, I'll sign them. Should I come out there? I'll come yeah. out there and sign them. Let me just put these things around. Thank you so much again. Yeah. Really, that's kind of you. You see why I needed the I needed the pictures. Yeah. 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 Yeah.